Good morning. There's this movie that came out when I was in middle school, and maybe you remember it. It was called um, Joe Dirt. I don't know if anyone remembers this movie. It's pretty stupid, but uh, it's funny. It has its moments. And there's this quote that they repeat a handful of times throughout the movie, and the quote is, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? Is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? You know, I would have never thought in my life that I'd be a pastor, but since becoming a pastor, I would have never thought in my life that I'd reference the movie Joe Dirt. (laughs) But here we are. Is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? It's funny. That quote came to mind as I was reading this passage for this week because as we wrap up our study through the book of James this morning, this is not far off from where James finishes his letter. James begins to point for us, he begins to point ahead to the return of our King Jesus. He starts to point out how Christians can and should be living as they await the return of our King Jesus. We're going to be in James chapter 5, starting at verse 7 this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll have the words on the screen. But before we get into it, will you just pray with me? Lord, we need your help right here in this moment. Because I can't speak these words, I can't speak Jesus to these people without the power of the Holy Spirit. And everyone in this room and watching online, they can't hear Jesus in these words without the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, you're the one that makes it make sense. Be with us in this moment. We desperately need to hear from you. We don't need just another talk or a sermon or motivation or inspiration. We need an encounter with you, Lord. And that's what we're praying for this morning. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7, says this. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, So that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I love that James writes about the patience of a farmer. I heard a story once that stuck with me about a radish farmer and his son in ancient China. All this farmer and his son had was one small plot of land and one horse. And together they would plow the fields and they would plant the radishes and then they would harvest the radishes and they would trade and sell them to make a living. As the years went on, the father could do less and so the son took on the bulk of the hard labor. And one year, as the son was getting the horse ready to plow the field, the horse broke loose and ran away. And the son tries to catch him, but he can't keep up, and eventually the horse runs away and over the field. And the son, panic-stricken, runs into the house and tells his father, Father, something terrible has happened. The horse has broken free and run away. This is the worst news ever. The father sits quietly for a moment, and then he says, Is it the worst news ever? I can't really tell either way, son. I can't really call it. And of course, the boy gets angry. What do you mean is it terrible? Of course it's terrible. We can't plow the field, so we can't plant the radishes. Now we won't have a harvest, and we're going to starve. 
This is the worst news ever, and the boy storms out. A few days later, the son is still sitting on the front porch sulking when he hears a distant rumble. The son looks up to see their horse running back over the hill, but not only is it their horse, but he has like 30 wild stallions running behind him. The horse runs into their gated field, and all the stallions follow behind him. The son slams the gate closed and runs in excitedly to tell his father, Father, you're never going to believe it. Our horse came back, and he brought an army of horses. This is the best news ever, Father. Guess what? We're done selling radishes. We're done with all the farming. We're in the horse trading business. We're going to be rich now. Dad, isn't that great news? And the father sits quietly for a moment and says, Is it great news? I, I can't really tell either way. I can't really call it, son. At this point, the son leaves because he thinks maybe his father's just lost his mind in his old age. The next day, the son is out working to try to tame these wild stallions. But you know, he's a radish farmer and he, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so as he's trying to mount one of these horses, he gets thrown off and ends up breaking both of his legs. They have a doctor come and look and wrap the boy's legs up and they get him set up in his bed. And the boy's just lamenting now, Father, what are we going to do? I can't walk and you can't plow the fields and you can't tame these horses. So now we have no hope. Things are as bad as they've ever been. This is terrible. Father sits quietly and says, is it terrible, son? I can't really tell. Either way, I can't really call it. So the son throws a pillow at his dad and tells him to get out. He's obviously lost his mind at this point. Well, a day or so goes by, and an even larger rumble can be heard on the hill. The father slowly walks to the front door, and he sees an entire army sitting on the hill. A general rides down to them and, and says that the country's going to war, and they're taking every able-bodied man to fight. The old man points at his son and says his legs are broken. He can't walk. He can't fight. The general looks at the son, looks at the father, and then returns back to the army. They march off to war, and they're never seen again. They all die in battle. The townspeople come and visit the man and his son, and they tell them how fortunate you are that your family's still together. You've dodged this awful tragedy. You must have the best luck ever. And this time the boy sits quietly for a moment and then eventually he speaks up and says, do we have the best luck ever? I can't really call it. <laughs> you see, the message of the story is that you never know what the future holds and so you can't get overly excited or distraught either way about your current circumstances because anything could happen. The future is unknown. And on the surface that might be comforting but also not really because the uncertainty of all of it is the killer. The uncertainty is overwhelming and anxiety-inducing to not know what the future holds. Well, here's what I love about James. James keeps the eternal perspective in front of us because here's the thing. If you're a Jesus follower, the future is not uncertain. If you're a Jesus follower, we know exactly how this story ends. James says it three times in that short passage. He says we're awaiting the coming of the Lord. He says the coming of the Lord is at hand, and then he says the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is waiting for the day that the Father tells him to come and get his children. And while we wait for the coming of the Lord, we're called to be patient. But we're not simply called to be patient for patience' sake, and we're not called to be patient because patience is a virtue. We can wait patiently because we are waiting for the return of our King. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The King is coming. And James is telling us that the imminence of that, the inevitability of that, the expectation of the return of Christ 
our king should affect every area of our life and every season of our life. But especially when hard times come and things get difficult. And so James mentions Job as an example. If you don't know Job's story, Job is a man who lost everything, lost his family, lost his possessions, lost everything good in his life. He got sick. And although Job was frustrated and broken and confused, in the end, Job continues to worship and follow God. And there's this moment in Job's story, if you've never read it, Job demands an answer from God for all the hardships that he's facing. God, all these things have happened to me in my life, and I've been faithful to you this entire time. I deserve an answer. I deserve an explanation. And instead of giving Job an, exam- or instead of giving Job an explanation for his suffering, God goes on for four chapters giving Job example after example of how in control he actually is. God talks about knowing the exact dimensions of the earth. God talks about holding back the seas and all their power. God talks about having storehouses where he keeps every individual snowflake and piece of hail. God talks about having control over the stars and things as vast as the universe while also talking about his intricate design and things as small as how mountain goats and deer give birth to their young. It is four straight chapters of God telling Job, I've got this. You need to trust me. What's the point of James's first portion and the conclusion of his letter? God is good. God is in control. So I can trust him while I await his return. God is good. God is in control. So I can trust him while I await his return. Sometimes when I drive to places that are familiar to me, places that I go to a lot, I sometimes like to take different routes when I get there. I'll take different paths, different roads. Sometimes I'll take back roads, just something different. I don't know why I do this. Maybe it helps me learn my way around or maybe I'm just bored. I don't know. But it's something that I do. And my nine-year-old son, Camden, from time to time, when we're in a place that's unfamiliar to him, he'll ask me, Daddy, are we lost? Now, we're not lost. We've never been lost. But the thing is, my son doesn't know where we are or where we're going sometimes. His surroundings look unfamiliar to him. He can't really gauge where we are. I mean, we could be in Exeter. We could be in Ohio. We could be two blocks away from our house for all he knows. He doesn't know where we are. But you see, I do. And because I do, my son can trust me. Even when the road gets bumpy, even when the neighborhood is unfamiliar, even if we're out driving at night, my son can trust me. And he can trust me because, one, I know where we're going. And because, two, there's nothing I wouldn't do to get him home. You see, humans are really good at panicking when things look unfamiliar. We're in a place we've never been. Maybe we're seeing things we've never seen. And that illusion we have that we're in control Well, that starts to fade a little bit, and we see that there's actually very little we can control in this life. And so we really quickly go from, I've got it, I steer my own ship, to things fall apart. And we say, I don't got it, I don't know what to do. And sometimes that happens like quick, right? Highest mountain, darkest valley, with one phone call. One doctor's visit. One conversation. We panic. Here's the thing, God's not confused, God is not lost, 
God is not apathetic about your situation, and God's certainly not shocked when hard times come our way. And when we look up at him, like my son does to me sometimes, and we say, Dad, are we lost? What we need to remember is that God is in control, and God is good, and so I can trust him in everything. Depression, job loss, divorce, cancer, bankruptcy, loss of a loved one. I can trust him in everything because he's in control. He knows exactly where we are, and he knows exactly where we're headed. And on that cross, he showed me that there is nothing he won't do to get me home. You see, waiting patiently in confidence for the Lord, that's not just a command, and that's not just a virtue, it's a gift. It's a gift we have in this life. We get to have confidence. We get to be patient. We don't have to fall apart like everyone else does. Dad is at the wheel. Dad is going to get us home. We can believe that. James challenges us to embrace that, like make that the theme of your life, especially when things get hard. And then James continues with this verse that almost feels out of place. It almost feels unrelated in the the middle of all this. God is good. Jesus is coming back. Talk that James has been writing. In verse 12, James goes on. And he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation kind of like way to take the wind out of our sails, James. Right? You start off with God is good. God is in control. Jesus is coming back. Don't make promises you can't keep. It's just like a little anticlimactic maybe. Like what's this have to do with anything? But you see contextually if we look at this we know that James is writing this letter to Jesus followers. A lot of whom are Jewish and a lot of whom are very familiar with the Bible and the laws inside of it. And really, this verse has to do with this little tactic that religious people during this time were using to bend the law. See, in the Old Testament, in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of them talk about swearing in the name of God. And how if you do that, if you swear to God and you break your word, that the consequences would be like, severe. Well, church people... Religious people, they knew about these writings, and so they'd swear, but they wouldn't swear in the name of God. They'd swear in the name of Jerusalem, or David, or or any other name, or any other thing. Why? So when they inevitably broke their promise, they could dodge the punishment. Well, I, I didn't swear to God, so it was this bending and manipulating of the rules, justifying sin. And James right here basically is following up this Jesus is coming back section of the letter by saying, man, are are these really the types of games we want to be playing when the king comes back? Manipulating the law, trying to find loopholes to justify our sin? Like, do we have any desire to present ourselves as holy and pleasing to our king, or are we just going to keep scheming and plotting and messing around until he comes back and catches us in the act? If James's first point is that God is good, God is in control, so I can trust him while I await his return, I think his second point is that God is good, God is in control, so I should be faithful to him as I await his return. If I'm being honest, if I'm being real with you guys, I, I don't really think Christians, and I'm including myself here, 
I don't really think Christians care all that much about how we're presenting ourselves to God, at least in America. I mean, I think we'll say we want to present ourselves to him as holy and pleasing. We'll say that, but I think most of the time with how we act, it almost feels like our posture is more like God should be happy I even showed up at all. We grumble at the thought of obedience and submission. Why can't I just do what I want to do? Continue to be unfaithful to God time and time again and then come to church and raise our hands and cry. You know what you would say to someone whose spouse was being unfaithful to them time and time again? You'd say to them, man, there's no way they actually love you if they're just continually unfaithful to you. And yet that's exactly what we do to God. When the king returns, how will he find us? In what state will we be in? Is Jesus going to come back to find us hammered drunk? Watching porn? Screaming at our spouse? Bad-mouthing someone we're supposed to love? Having just walked by and ignored someone in need? How will he find us when he comes back? Do you ever think about that? I mean, it's a little scary to think about, but I think more than scary, I really think it's just like heartbreaking. You know, the church is called to be the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Imagine a husband coming home so excited to take his wife away somewhere better, so excited to be with her forever, only to find her in bed with someone else. Do we care at all about how we're presenting ourselves to God? I heard this clip from a podcast last month, and I wish I would have saved it because I cannot find it for the life of me. This guy had this hospice nurse on his podcast, and they were discussing that job and what it was like to take care of people at the end of their lives, like the things that they'd see, the things that they'd hear, the conversations they'd have with people. And this particular hospice nurse was a Christian, and so he said that he'd made it a habit to ask other Christians this question to help alleviate some of their fear or stress about dying. He'd ask these other believers on their deathbed, he'd ask, what are you most looking forward to when you get to heaven? Does that sound familiar? What are you most looking forward to in heaven? And he said most of the time the answers were pretty predictable. I, I can't wait to see my mom again. I can't wait to not feel pain anymore. I can't wait to see the streets of gold. I can't wait to fly maybe. I can't wait to see Jesus' face. And these are all really good answers. But he said there was this older gentleman that he was taking care of once and this this man had already lost his parents, his siblings, his wife, pretty much everyone in his life. And this hospice nurse asked this gentleman, he said, what are you most looking forward to when you get to heaven? And he said, this gentleman's eyes welled up with tears and he got choked up and he said, I can't wait to stop sinning against Jesus. I can't wait to be faithful to him the way he deserves. I mean, I'm telling you guys, it, it like rocked me to my core because it revealed something to me about myself I had never even thought about that it never even crossed my mind to be excited about being permanently faithful to Jesus you see because I'm so obsessed with myself and my own sin and so I'd probably mumble under my breath and kick rocks like man I'm not going to be able to do this or this for all eternity anymore and if you can't relate to that, and I'm being too transparent right now, you can feel free to judge me. 
But you see, I don't think that's the case. I think we have a loyalty problem. I think we have a self-obsession problem, a self-satisfaction problem. And I think James is just trying to wake us up. When the king comes back, because he's coming back, how will he find us? I think Paul reflects what every believer's posture should be in this life as we wait for Jesus to come and get us or for us to go to him, whichever happens first. Paul writes to Timothy, we've read this, he said, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Man, I want to be found faithful. I want to be told, well done, good and faithful servant when I see Jesus. And not for the sake of like trying to earn my salvation. I know there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. Jesus has already done that for me. But just in light of what he's done to transform my life, this God who has radically transformed me from the inside out and done more for me than I could ever put into words, I just want to be faithful to him the way that he deserves. So first, God is good, God is in control, so I can trust him as I await his return. Second, God is good, God is in control, so I should be faithful to him as I await his return. And then last, God is good, God is in control, so I must stay in community with him and his church as I await his return. James wraps up his letter starting in verse 13 saying this, says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want you guys to repeat after me, there is power in community. One more time, there's power in community. You can even hear the power in it as we speak together. And there's not a ton of us in here. There's probably not even 100 people in this room. You can hear the power in community. Hear these words of James. Are you suffering? Man, that's a bummer. Don't spend time alone. Spend time with God and his people. Are things amazing for you right now? Hey, that's great. Don't spend time alone. Spend time with God and his people. Are you sick? Let some people who know God and know you come and pray for you. Struggling with sin? Tell another believer. Don't keep it hidden and try to fight it on your own. There's power in community. There's power in prayer. There's strength in community. You are less likely to wander if you are rooted in community. God is good. God is in control, so I must stay in community with him and his church as I await his return. You know one of the worst qualities in human beings? When we struggle, we disappear. We hide until we aren't struggling 
or until we have the energy to look like we're not struggling. We isolate. We hide. We just disappear. Do you know the worst time to disappear? When you're struggling. Jesus said he came for the sick. He came for the hurting. The church community and every church community should be the place where people can freely run when things are difficult, and yet, more times than not, people only show up when they have it all together. It makes no sense. We have relationships here. We build trust. We lean on one another. We point each other towards Jesus, and then out of nowhere, see each other for like weeks. And then we finally see each other again, and it's like, hey, what happened? It's been a while. Oh, you know, I was just... I was having a hard time. I was struggling a little bit. And that's the moment you thought it'd be good to step away from church. That's the moment you thought you'd be better off by yourself. Repeat after me one more time. I'm not better off by myself. You see, even God says seemingly within moments of creating mankind, oh yeah, he shouldn't be by himself. That's, that's no good. There's a reason why we push connection so hard here at South Point. There's a reason why we're doing this connect more thing with all these tables and trying to get people plugged into community and start building relationships. And it's because, no offense, you're not better off by yourself. And I'm not talking about simply coming to service on Sunday mornings. Like we worship here and we dig into the word, but like this, and I've said this before, like this thing that we're doing here right now, this is not the Christian life. You aren't going to grow in your faith just from this. The music and the preaching, like we do all right, but there's not a worship service and there's not a sermon in the world that can replace being deeply rooted in a Christian community with people who will adamantly push you towards Jesus. You need that in your life. I mean, can you imagine a community of people on fire for Jesus and then like sharing that together, like really sharing that together and spurring one another on, like texting or calling each other out of the blue. Like, hey, I read this crazy thing in the Bible today and it just like, it blew my mind and I had to send it to you because it was so profound for me. Like, what do you think? Or what about, man, could we just, could we like get together and just like talk? Or what, let, let's pray. Like I, I pray on my own too, but there's just something about, praying together, and like the way that you pray, that like fires me up. You ever have that? Like there are some people in this church and in my life like, man, I get together with them and I start praying with them and then I start hearing them pray and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that's right. I can approach, approach God this way. Like I can cry out to them like that. Man, there's so much power in community. And what about that last verse? If any of you wanders, and someone helps bring them back. You ever had that? Rocky, shaky season of faith and someone who loves Jesus and loves you, like hits you right between the eyes with the truth, like, hey, don't take this the wrong way, but I can't say I love you if I'm not willing to tell you the truth. This is not who you are. Like you were called so, to so much more than whatever this thing that you're doing is. Like God's plan for you is so far above this mess. Like, let's get you back into the arms of Jesus where you belong. You were chosen. Like, you have a purpose. You have a hope for your life. I'm going to help you remember it, okay? You need friends like this. 
You need people like this in your life, people that will challenge you and stretch you and help build you up and even tear you down a little bit when you need it. You are no good by yourself. And when you get a community of people like this together and they allow God to lead the charge, like they just hand the keys over to him, God, we're here for it, whatever it is. When you get a community that does that, that is when families and neighborhoods and cities and states are radically transformed in the name of Jesus. James wrote that Elijah, who we talked about last series, Elijah prayed for it to not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the skies burst open with rain, and James makes sure to emphasize, hey, Elijah wasn't anybody. He was just some dude. He had a nature just like ours. But he had community with God, like real community. Man, I want that here. I want that for us. And we have a really awesome community here. We really do. We have people who are willing to be real and show up for one another. And we fight, we really fight to keep everything focused on Jesus. Hear me when I say this, we can be better. There is room for improvement. We need to be even more real and more transparent. We need to be rooted even deeper into community with one another. We need to have an even bigger emphasis on prayer. Like we pray here, we need to be praying about everything before, during, and after the fact. And we need to be fighting harder to share the message of the gospel with the people in our lives with like a sense of urgency, like it actually matters. We need to be even more obsessed with Jesus. We need to be even more obsessed with Jesus. I think that's the point of all this. One, because he's amazing and he can do things for you that you cannot even begin to comprehend. Even if you're saved, it's not done yet. He has plans for you. And two, because he's coming back. He is. You might not think about it, but he is. All of this, the stuff that we obsess over every day, think about, lose sleep over, all of this, this is all going away. The world, everything in it. There's going to come a point when the things of this life aren't even a distant memory, like 10,000 years from now, 10 trillion years from now. You ever think about that? And I, don't, I know we don't want to get like so eternally obsessed that like we miss the present, but man, I assure you, it is far worse to get so obsessed with the present that we miss eternity. What are you going through right now? How good is it? How bad is it? If things are going great, and you're a Jesus follower, just wait, man. We haven't even begun to see what great actually looks like. And if things are worse for you than they've ever been, and you're a Jesus follower, just wait. What's the Bible say? This too shall pass. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Bible doesn't actually say that. This too shall pass. That's not in the Bible. You can fact check that. This is what the Bible actually says, and this is way better says, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. <laughs> hey man, we're going to see Jesus face to face. Either we're going to him or he's coming to us, but either way, we're going to see him. And until that day comes, we can rest on two major truths. God is good 
and God is in control. And because of these two truths, I can trust him, should be faithful to him, and I must stay in community with him and his church while I await his return. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. I mean, I don't even know if there's anything else that I need to pray other than, Lord, make us a community that is even more obsessed with Jesus. And man, we're pretty obsessed. We're pretty obsessed. But I know we can be even more obsessed. Help us to be a community that as we anxiously await your return to come and fix everything and make us in this entire world know that as we wait for you, we trust you because we understand that you're in control and you're doing everything you can to bring us home. Help us to be a community, God, that's faithful to you, not to try to earn our salvation, but because we've caught this passing glimpse of how amazing you are and you've transformed us from the inside out, and we just want to be faithful to you and present ourselves as holy and pleasing. God, help us to be a community that doesn't run when things get hard and then fall into isolation where we're so easily driven and tempted and beat up by the enemy, but help keep us in community, God, especially when things get difficult. Make this a community that is so obsessed with you, Lord, that radical transformation happens day in and day out. Start a revival in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and our state. Let us be that church, God. Send us. Help us to stay obsessed with you as we walk out of this place, God. Don't let us walk out of this building and fall right back into the same routines, obsessing over the things of the world. Help us to walk out of this building and remain obsessed with you. The only thing worth our attention. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.